Good afternoon. Let me go ahead and open us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have made your people to be a people of the book. We love your holy word. We read it, sing it, pray it, and inwardly digest it. Help us to hear the story of the Bible. And even more so, Lord, help us to locate ourselves within that story so that we can understand who we are, where we are, when we are, what's gone wrong with the world, and what you have done and are doing to fix it. Help us to see our role in that great salvific story. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that understand. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'd like to officially welcome you all to the start of our new adult catechesis course, The Story of the Bible. You may have noticed when I said good afternoon or when I said amen that there was nobody who responded. That's because right now I am talking in an empty sanctuary. This talk was originally given this past Sunday in our adult catechesis hour, but we had a technological snafu and uh, the talk wasn't recorded. It wasn't live streamed, so there is no record of it, and we have uh, hopes of using it in other, other ways beyond uh, just our adult catechesis hour. So I, I've come back to the church to re-record the talk that I gave. This is actually the third time that I'll be giving this talk. Uh, just an hour ago, I did this again, only to sit down and check the live stream and find out that there was no audio. So uh, third time's a charm, as they say. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. If this doesn't work today, I'm going to have to come back. I'm going to have to come back Wednesday. But at this point, I think I've thought of everything. So the story of the Bible, uh, in broad terms, we are going to get to that story before we close today. But that's not uh, our whole purpose this morning. That's not even our primary. Uh, purpose, certainly not our primary purpose this morning. When we did this live on Sunday, at this point, we opened up the floor for conversation. We wanted to hear from people answers to this one very vague, very large question, which was, what is the one thing that you want to know about the Bible? This was intended to get people talking. We had uh, a, a big board with sort of a post-it, an oversized post-it note on it, Uh, And Joyce Dolan was very kindly writing down the questions that were being asked. I wasn't trying to answer the questions in the moment. This was just to hear from people what they were wondering, what they might be expecting. If you're watching at home, uh, if you're, maybe we're here and are watching this again, you thought I didn't catch it all on Sunday, I want to hear this again, feel free to email me, feel free to call me, uh, answer this, you know, question. I don't, I don't want to promise that we'll answer it in this course, but we will try our best to answer as many of these questions as possible. Maybe in this course, maybe in a latter course, maybe in a completely different format. We're talking about uh, new and creative ways to sort of 
get uh, our, our message, our voice out into the world, out into the community. So your questions are really important. They're really helpful. When they were being asked, what we did was we, we put them in what we called the parking lot. Uh, the parking lot. Meaning, you know, we recognize them. They're good questions. They're solid questions. When we're actually doing this course on Sunday mornings, the way it'll work is if someone asks a question that is immediately relevant to what we're talking about, I'll do my best to answer it in the moment. But for those questions that are perhaps tangential or maybe might take us off course, uh, I'll put them in the parking lot and we'll try to address them later. If you've been to our adult ed sessions before, you probably know that I have a, a bit of a tendency to rabbit trail, a bit of a tendency to take one idea and kind of spiral in a different direction and then look at my watch and go, oh my gosh, we're almost out of time. So to, to help me stay focused, to help the course stay on track, we are going to parking lot some of these questions and say we'll get to them. They're good questions, but we'll, we'll come back to that at some later time. Back to this week's objective, this first week of the course, week one introduction. My intention is to explain to you what we're doing and, more importantly, why we're doing it. As you might recall, this course is fundamentally a course on discipleship. But this might not be apparent may not be obvious to everyone how the story of the Bible and discipleship are connected. So let me explain. That's sort of the goal for this morning, to explain that connection between the story of the Bible and discipleship. Our Lord's great commission to his church is found in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Of everything that's said here in these important verses, the emphasis in the Greek falls on the words make disciples. In Greek, that's the only imperative or command in these verses. Everything else is participles. Everything else is tangential, so to speak, to that one command, make disciples. So we're left with the question, what does it mean to make disciples? In the ecclesial context, in the church context in which I grew up, and that's kind of the predominant church culture here in America, making disciples is equal or equivalent to evangelism. We preach the gospel, someone believes, and we have made a disciple. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. In that analogy, becoming a disciple is like crossing a line. On this side of the line, you're not a disciple. On this side of the line, you are. I suggest, on the contrary, that Jesus gives his church 
a far more difficult task. Getting across that line may be the start of discipleship. But a better analogy for what Jesus has in mind is the process of breaking, sorry, of baking bread, of baking bread. Making a disciple is like making bread. Along the way, as you gather ingredients, preheat the oven, mix the ingredients, knead the dough, and then finally place it in the oven, and I'm certain that I've left out lots of steps here. All along the way, you are making bread, but, and this is important, you haven't made bread until you've pulled the finished product out of the oven. You haven't made bread until you've pulled the, full, the finished bread out of the oven. The goal isn't the process. When someone says, I want to make bread, they're not talking about the process. They're talking about the end result. The goal is the finished product. Crossing the line and praying the prayer is the beginning of the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. But that certainly isn't all that Jesus had in mind. Jesus' command that we make disciples isn't merely about the beginning of the process. Get them to cross that line and then you're done. When Jesus says make disciples, He's talking about the beginning, the end, and everything in between. He's talking about making fully baked Christians. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how we get from where we are, whatever step we are in the process, to there, from where we are, to the goal. We have to ask how we help ourselves, others, the nations outside our walls to become fully baked disciples of Jesus Christ. There are lots of potential answers to that question, but at the foundation of them all, like at the foundation of many questions, is a question of identity. Identity. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do we identify someone who is in the process of becoming a fully baked disciple of Jesus Christ? What is it that a disciple of Jesus Christ does? What's the goal of discipleship? What's the problem that being a disciple is intended to fix? What's the solution to that problem? That's what this course is about. I want to teach you the story of the Bible in broad form so that you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, can locate yourself in that story and have a better understanding 
of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This course isn't like a course on the story of the Lord of the Rings. We're not just telling a story, even a great story, and it is a great story. The goal here is for all of you to be able to locate yourselves in that great story. To understand yourselves as participants in that great story. As characters or actors with a role to play. As the story moves towards its end. We'll get to this later, but the danger... The danger is that if we don't know the story well, first, we won't be able to share it with others. And I'm pretty sure Jesus wants us to be able to share this story. And second, if we get the story wrong, where it began, where it's going, and what has happened in between, we will almost certainly misunderstand our role in the story. We will misunderstand what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So in terms of discipleship, this course, learning the story of the Bible, it's the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of everything. Everything else we do will be built off of this story, off of this course. Another term for what we're talking about here is worldview. I suspect most of you have probably heard this term before, but for those of you who haven't, simply put, you can kind of see this uh, in the term itself. Our worldview is how we view or see the world around us. But, not surprisingly, it's actually a bit more complicated than that. Our worldview isn't simply how we view the world externally. Rather, our worldview is how we understand our place, our role in the world. It's how we understand the world to work and what we think we should be doing in the world with our lives. There's many ways that you can talk about a worldview. But one way is to chart a worldview upon an axis with four points. Uh, On Sunday morning, I I handed out a a sheet of paper that was mostly blank. It was mostly meant um, to be a place to write notes on. But there was on that sheet of paper the image that I'm going to show you now. It's this four-point axis with lines connecting each part. This axis helps us study other people's worldviews and reflect upon our own. Because our worldview is a combination of the stories that we tell and the stories that we inhabit. The symbols that define us. The actions that we take in the world, that's that word praxis, 
and our answers to five specific questions. Our worldview is made up of story, praxis, symbol, and questions, or answers to questions. We'll come back to the questions in a minute, but for now, I want us to look at each part of this axis, starting with story. Story. We are the stories that we believe. We are the stories that we inhabit intentionally or unintentionally, knowingly or unknowingly. Most of the stories that we believe and inhabit are told to us by other people whom we trust, whom we love, teachers, parents, Sunday school teachers, friends, relatives. We accept those stories, we hear them, we accept them, and then we inhabit them. We live them out. We play our role in those stories. From our earliest days, we make sense of our lives based on the stories other people tell us. There's a sense in which you could call this indoctrination, but there's no other option. Stories are how we as human beings make sense of the world. And please note that I'm using story in a very broad way here. I'm using story in such a way that even an individual word has inherent in it a story, a beginning, an end, roles to play in that story. You might say, that's, that's just one word. It can't mean all that. But think about the word mom. Think about who our mom is. When you're little, you're, you're told by this figure who's caring for you, say mama, say mama. We're taught how to respond to this person. Don't talk to your mom like that. We figure some of this out implicitly. We figure out what it takes to get positive responses from those around us, including our mom, including our dad. And we embrace those things. We want positive responses, so we continue in those actions that give us that positive feedback, that positive response that we're looking for. We don't even realize that we're inhabiting roles that have been predetermined, preset for us. Think about who our dad is. There's a story there, too. We don't sit around at, you know, I don't know, four years old and say, hey, hey, before I call you dad, I'm going to need to see a paternity test. We don't do that because we're living out a story that we're inheriting from other people, a story told to us by other people. It may be true. 
It may be false. It may be somewhere in between. Yours may be a beautiful case of adoption. But until we're presented with a contradictory story, contradictory facts, someone gives us a story, call me mama, call me dada. We inherit that story and we learn to play our roles in that story. There is a story in who your family is. Not just who your parents are, but who their parents were. And the values and priorities that they passed down to your parents and have now been passed down to you. We have family values and family history. They are imposed on us. And we are expected to live out our role, to play our role in that story, in our family's story. We inherit these stories, and more significantly, we inherit our roles in these stories. Let me help you wrap your heads around this if it's not clear yet. In the United States, we tell different stories than they tell in Russia. And both the United States and Russia tell different stories than they do in Germany or in South American countries. In the United States, the North tells different stories than the South, which is why we get into these heated arguments about what to do with the statues of Southern generals. Because we're telling, the North and the South are telling different stories. This same person plays very different roles in two very different stories. Your family has its values, its story. The family that lives next to you has its stories. And these stories are how we make sense of the world. They're literally what it is that gives the world meaning for us as human beings. Let me give you some examples, because this, this is important. Understanding the storied nature of our reality and our understanding of reality is, is crucial for all of this. So let me give you some examples. Just, just three more strikes. Just three more strikes. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? It means one thing when it's said to a bowler, another when said to a pitcher, and something entirely different when said to a drone pilot. The bowler, three strikes away from a perfect game, three strikes away from 300, just finish out the 10th, just three more strikes. The pitcher's trying to get out of the inning. The coach doesn't want to use a reliever. So he's out there on the mound saying, come on, just three more strikes. Three more strikes. You'll get us out of this inning. The stories that we inhabit, the roles that we play, they're what 
they are what give our actions and our words meaning and significance. If, if you're a married couple, let's just make another example here. If you're a married couple and you got engaged at a fancy restaurant, you might be married now for 10, 15, 20 years. It's the day of your anniversary and the husband says to the wife, hey, do you want to go to such and such restaurant for, din- for dinner tonight? Got a big smile on his face. That such and such restaurant, of course, is the place where you got engaged. He's saying way more with that sentence. Hey, do you want to go to such and such restaurant tonight for dinner? He's saying way more than his words are actually saying. He's saying today's our anniversary. And I remember this day is important in our story and I remember and I want to honor it. He's saying this place is important in our story and our family's story and I want to go back there and almost reenact this crucial, important moment that we lived out once before. In a sense, if the husband said to the wife all the details, if he said, hey, in case you forgot, today is our anniversary, and we got engaged at such and such restaurant, so I was thinking that in honor of our anniversary, we can go there for dinner. We should go there for dinner. If he said that, it's demeaning. It cheapens the value of what's happening. Because the meaning, the value, comes from the fact that you both already know what this day is. You both already know what the place means to you both. Because the place and the date are part of your story. They're part of your identity. One more example. One more example. Imagine someone shouts the word, For! For. Is it a little kid who just figured out what two plus two equals? And in his excitement, he just shouts the word out? Or is it John Hayes after hitting a bad golf shot? I wish you all could have heard the laugh that got on Sunday. I asked John ahead of time if it was okay if I used that. John is a great golfer, for the record. He's a very good golfer. The words that we speak and write make sense to us and to others because of the stories that we inhabit. We think in story form. We learn in story form. There's a very good reason that we don't just tell kids, now, don't say you need help when you don't actually need help, or eventually you'll call for help and no one will come. Instead, we tell them the story, the story of the boy who cried wolf. We tell fables 
We tell moralistic tales. Jesus speaks in parables because stories are how we learn. They're how we make sense of the world around us. We even understand each other in story form. If I asked you, you know, if I sat down with a new member of our church or a newcomer, and I asked you to tell me about yourself, you could, it's an option, you could tell me a bunch of facts. I was born on this date, I weighed this amount, I was born in this hospital in this town, I went to this school, eventually I met this guy, I got married, whatever. Bunch of, bunch of facts. Or, you could tell me a story. You could tell me a story that defines you and makes sense of your life of what you've done, of your past, of the things that you do now in the present, of the things that you say, of what your goals in life are. You could tell me a story. If you want to understand who someone else is, if you want someone else better way to say that. If you want someone else to understand who you are, what makes you tick, what makes you do the things that you do, what makes you have the goals that you have, what you do is you tell a story. My story goes like this. I was raised in a church all my life. I was raised in church all my life. And I always knew Somewhere deep down that I wanted to be a preacher. That's why I went off to Bible college in California. Because I thought that was the best place that I could go to learn to study the Bible. And my story goes on from there. If you want to understand me, a list of facts about my life might help. You might say, well, I I know him because I know he went to this school or... He did this at a certain age. But if you want to truly understand me, you need to know my story. Because that's who I am. That's what makes sense of who I am and what I do. What my goals and priorities and values are. So that's story. That's the first point on this axis. It's the top one. I think it's... um, Arguably the most significant, the the most overarching. The second point I want to consider is praxis. Praxis is simply a fancy word for the things that we do. Our worldview, our understanding of the world, our understanding of the stories that we inhabit and the roles we are meant to play determine how we behave. They determine the stories that we inhabit, the roles we think we are supposed to play. They determine, or at least explain, why we do the things that we do, why we or how we behave. 
And it's a fair objection to say at this point, well, I don't always behave the way that I intend, or my behavior isn't always consistent. That's okay. That's, that's true. Our worldview, it's not something static. Nor is our behavior fixed as if, you know, you just have this thing in place, this worldview in place, and you automatically get certain behavior out of it. The stories in our heads are often muddled and contradictory. And our minds and bodies are fallen and broken, something we'll talk about more next week. And besides, when we talk about praxis, we're not really talking about the day-to-day activities of our lives. We're talking about the big actions. Why does one person spend their life pursuing, acquiring wealth, making as much money, hoarding as much money as they possibly can? And yet another person spends their life giving their money away to feed and shelter the homeless? Why does one person marry and another person choose singleness? This one, this one stings a bit. Why do kids go to church with their parents when they're young but often stop when they're older. Because when they're younger, they're living somebody else's story. They're living out somebody else's worldview. But when they get older, they start to decide for themselves which stories they want to inhabit and which they don't. And that affects their praxis, the things that they do. It affects whether they continue to come to church or not. Worldviews always imply a way of being in the world, a way of being in the world, a way of existing, a way of living. And that way of being is praxis. And praxis is tied to the stories that we tell and inhabit. It's tied to the answers that we give to those five big questions. And it's tied to the symbols that make sense of our reality. Right there with the stories that we tell and inhabit are the actions that we take in our lives. They, too, are telling a story. We need to have the story right in our minds. The big story. So that we can know what it is we're supposed to do in this world. We can understand what it means to live in this world so we can make sense of our lives and know what the ultimate goal of all this is. If we listen to one story, the Bible story, then we have one goal in mind. 
If we listen to other stories, the myriad of the countless stories that we hear outside our church, outside these walls, that aren't the story of the Bible, then we have a different goal in mind. We have a different understanding of how to be in this world. If we're going to know how we're supposed to be in this world, how we're supposed to live and function, then we have to know the right story. We have to build our lives on the right story. And the right story, in case it's not clear, is the story of the Bible. Third, symbols. I'm not going to linger here for very long except to say that for the purpose of this course, the story of the Bible symbol may be the least significant. Symbols for us are shorthand ways of hinting at greater stories. A wedding ring symbolizes a wedding, marriage, and a family. It doesn't have to be the ring from that day because it's a symbol. It's not the thing itself. It's pointing beyond the thing itself to something else. A cross, in the same way, symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and actually so much more. A flag represents a nation, and as such, we are told we must treat it with respect, with dignity. In this country, we stand for some things, we kneel for others, and if you get that wrong, you had better watch out. Because these symbols are deeply ingrained in us. They point to stories that are the foundations of our lives. And if those stories are called into question because our symbols are called into question, we get anxious, nervous, even fearful. Because the symbol represents so much more than the object itself. It's pointing beyond itself to a a story, a narrative, a way of being in the world. Take some time to look at the symbols that define your life. Notice the things that point to something greater than themselves. And you'll start to get a sense of your worldview. You'll start to get a sense of what it is that truly matters to you. What it is that truly defines you. That's symbols. Lastly, questions. There are at least five questions that all of us are asking. Whether implicitly or explicitly. And our answers to those questions shape or expose our worldview. Probably both shape and expose our worldview. I'm going to go through each one of these questions one by one because they're they're very important. First question. Who are we? Who are we? 
Where are we? When are we? What's wrong? And what's the solution? I hope you can already hear the narrative format to those questions. They're asking about a story, my story. How did I get here? Who am I? Why am I in this place and what does it mean? What happened before me that brought me to this moment, to this place? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the way things are? And how do we fix it? Let's think for a moment about those questions. Who are we? Was I created by God? Or was I created by chance? If, if I was created by God, was it a loving Heavenly Father? Or was it a violent, power-obsessed God? Where are we? Are we on a planet that was created and called good by our Heavenly Father? A planet that our God intends to restore, redeem, and make new? Or are we on a planet that God intends to do away with at the end of all things? Is there value in the stuff of creation? Or is it chaff? Would all be burned away in the end? What does it mean for ourselves? What does it mean to be an American instead of a Canadian or a Russian? What does it mean for me to have born, been born here and someone else to have been born over there across some line on some map? What does it mean to be born in Florida rather than in California? To be born to this family rather than the family next door or a family in another country? When are we? When we think about who we are and where we, uh, who we are and where we are, we have to wrestle with the linear nature of our reality. We didn't just show up here. 
to be an American or to be a Christian, to be anything, is to be built upon what it has meant to be that thing in the past, to be an American in the past, or to be a Christian in the past. We don't just enter the story brand new and start creating things afresh, defining things afresh. We have to reckon with what's come before us and where we are in the story that we're telling. To be a member of your family is built, what it means to be a member of your family, is built upon your family's past history. If there's a story being told, and there is, lots of them, what we're asking ourselves is where are we in that story? Are we at the beginning? Are we at the end? Are we somewhere in between? Are we still in Genesis 1 and 2? Judges, the minor prophets. Are we still in Matthew and Mark? Where are we in the story of the Bible? Where are we in the stories that we tell? What's wrong? Most worldviews have built into them some problem. Call it evil, call it the devil, call it chaos, call it socialism or capitalism or the big bad wolf. Most, if not all, worldviews have an inherent problem with the way the world is. And that leads us to the last question. What is the solution Along with an inherent problem in all worldviews, there is also an inherent solution. There is some answer as to how best to deal with the problem or problems of this world. To answer these questions, we're going to need a story, a big story. A story that explains everything. Everything. And if we want others to believe us, to think like we do, to behave like we do, to give the same answers to the same questions that we do, to make sense of their lives the way that we do, in a way that we would call a Christian worldview then we need to know that story, that big story, and be able to tell it to others. When we can answer these questions, who are we, where are we, when are we, what's wrong, and what's the solution, we are going to understand what it is that we should be doing in this world. We're going to understand what it is that truly gives our lives meaning and value. We're going to understand our purpose, our place in that story. 
the claim of Christianity is not, is not that we have some particularly clever ideas to share with the world. Some insightful spiritual reflections that will bring you peace of mind. Some nifty tidbits that will help you balance your checkbook or be a better mom or whatever. All that may, to a lesser or greater extent, extent, be true. But the claim of Christianity, the claim of the Christian worldview, is that the big story the Bible tells the symbols that we hold up that point to that story. They are speaking, or they claim to be speaking, not about some fiction, but about the Creator God and the world that He made that we now inhabit. N.T. Wright puts it this way, the Christian claim in particular is committed to its own publicness. Its own publicness. That is to say, in our Christian theology, in our Christian living, in our Christian storytelling, we claim not to be offering one story among many. We claim not to be offering some Helpful thoughts. The pluralist might say, hey, there are lots of stories. There are lots of meta-narratives. There are lots of ways of defining reality that help some people and help other people. And there may be lots of options. But every worldview, especially, especially Christianity, says, yes, there may be many options. But this, this is the true one. This is the true one. Christianity claims not to be telling one story among many. But as the book title says, to be telling the true story of the whole world. The true story of the whole world. That's what this course is about. It's not about a great work of fiction or a great narrative that you might find some moral wisdom in. We are talking about the true story of the whole world. Of the Creator, God, and the world that He made and its fall and His plan to redeem it through His Son. So where do we go to find that story? Where do we go to learn that story, to find the answers to the questions about who we are, where we are, when we are, what's wrong, and what's the solution? We turn to Scripture. We turn to the Bible. We turn to the one book that tells the true story of the whole world. So much of our reading of the Bible is 
piecemeal and fragmented. We take individual verses and frame them and put them up on our walls. We might read a chapter here or there or maybe even a book or two, but we do so most frequently or often in isolation from the greater story. From the larger narrative running from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation. And because we miss that bigger story in all of its brilliance and all of its complexity, when we try to answer those five basic questions, often we get the answers wrong. Which means we get our worldview wrong. Which means we don't understand what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We can't know what it truly means to be a a disciple of Jesus Christ at this point in the story, if we don't know our role in the story, if we don't know the story well. So let's talk about that story now in broad broad form. This is the 30,000-foot view. The book you're reading that I just had on the screen a moment ago by Bartholomew and Goheen tell this story is as a drama in six acts. I understand why they arrange the material like this, but I'm not a, a fan of this division. So instead of a six-act drama with an interlude, we're going to talk about the story of the Bible in five parts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. These five acts are going to help us answer the questions of who we are, where we are, when we are, what's wrong, and what's the solution. That's what this course is about. We are laying the foundation of a Christian worldview so that we can know our place in the story of the Bible, in the true story of the whole world, and understand the role that we have to play as disciples of Jesus Christ in that grand narrative. That's what this course is about. That's why it's the foundation of discipleship. Because if we can't answer who we are, where we are, when we are, what's wrong, and what's the solution, we're not going to have any clue about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The story you're going to hear over the next five weeks, the story we're going to tell is the true story of the whole world from beginning to end. That's the claim of the Bible and nothing less. It's the story that gives meaning to everything. Everything we do, everything we say, every goal that we have. It gives meaning to our lives, to our families, to our relationships. It's the story 
that gives meaning to everything. The story that explains why the world is the way it is and what's happened and is happening to set the world right. It's the story that tells us what it truly means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. I hope you all come back in the next five weeks to hear this incredible story. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have put before us in your holy word a grand narrative. And you have made us as such a way, in such a way as human beings that we find our meaning, we find the reason for the things that we do and the actions that we take in that story. The world bombards us the moment that we walk outside these doors with all kinds of different stories, with all kinds of different values, and all kinds of different problems, with all kinds of different solutions. But in your holy word, Heavenly Father, we hear the true story of the whole world. We hear the foundation on which to build our lives. Help us. Help us, Lord, to hear that story truly and rightly and to build our lives, our worldviews, our way of being in the world wisely upon that foundation of your holy word. Amen.